0: Way back in the summer of 2020, anybody remember that time? (laughs) Uh, At the height of the COVID madness, our elder team decided that it would be really profitable for us to study through the Gospel of John. And after much consideration, we decided to title it That You May Believe, and you've been seeing that title up on the screen each and every week. And just to remind you, that phrase comes straight out of the text of Scripture from John chapter 20. In fact, it's part of John's stated purpose in writing down the gospel from his perspective. So I'm going to put the full text up on the screen in just a moment. But the, the background of his statement is so, is so important to understand. After laying out in the first 20 chapters of his gospel, seven miraculous sign, signs that point us to who Jesus really is, it's almost you hear in John's voice a lament that he doesn't have enough space to write down all the things he could write down, about what Jesus did when he walked the earth. So here's here's what he said, if it's going to go. There we go. Good. John writes, many other signs, other signs, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, the ones that we've been studying now for almost two years, these have been written down, so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And to what end? That believing you may have life in his name. That's why we have called this series what we've called it. And that has been the prayer of our elder team from the very beginning, that everybody who visits Oak Hill or anyone who calls Oak Hill their home but hasn't yet bowed their knee to Christ, it's been our prayer that that person would see the truth of these signs and come to realize that, That the scriptures is a trustworthy recording of the evidence that shows without a doubt that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is Israel's Messiah, that he is the very son of God who took on flesh to die for us, to become our substitute on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And by seeing and hearing that you might believe. Now, there's an old saying when it comes to signs, seeing is believing, right? Anybody ever heard that before? Not necessarily. One of the things that we've been reading over and over again in the Gospel of John is when it comes to spiritual matters, that saying is not always true. In fact, what the Gospels tell us is that natural man and natural woman, they are quite capable of seeing with their own eyes and still refusing to believe. For as long as I've been a Christian, I have heard people say, skeptics say, if your God would just make himself known to me, If he would just come down and do a miracle, then I'd believe. But of course, that's not how the God of the universe operates. He doesn't jump when we demand things of him. When we snap our fingers, God doesn't respond to us that way. And the reality is, if a skeptic like that did see a genuine miracle right before his eyes, he still wouldn't believe unless God had first done a work in his heart that gave him the ability to see and believe. Without God's initial work in the heart and mind, he would still doubt that miracle and he would still search far and wide to find a naturalistic explanation for why it happened or how it happened. Because at the end of the day, that skeptic, that natural man, that natural woman has no desire to incline himself or herself toward God and submit. And in fact, the Bible tells us that person has no ability to incline themselves on their own towards God and believe. And that's the only explanation for what we're about to read in our text in John 11 this morning. If there was ever a miracle that would cause every single person who saw it to fall on their knees and believe that Jesus is the Christ, it was the raising of Lazarus from the grave. You would think every single person that was there that day would instantly worship the one who prayed to the Father and then called Lazarus out of his own tomb. Can you possibly imagine a more awe-inspiring sight than seeing Lazarus shuffle his way to the front of that tomb? Now, not to be too gross this early in the morning, but I want you to imagine what a, a human corpse would look like without today's embalming techniques after four days. Think about that, how pitiful the condition of his body would have been. And yet with three powerful words from the incarnate creator, Not only was Lazarus' soul rejoined with his body in that instant, but in the blink of an eye, all of his decayed flesh and decayed muscles were reinvigorated. All of his internal organs were made to function again. All of the vascular and respiratory systems began to work. And Lazarus' brain activity was brought back to full capacity so that he could hear the voice of the Lord and come forth from his own tomb. Do not gloss over those details. As I said, can you imagine anything more impressive than seeing that particular sight, more jaw dropping, and yet not everybody believed? Here's the thing religion can't raise the dead, can it? Religion cannot raise the dead to life. All of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees combined couldn't bring somebody back to life. Even modern day medicine, with all of our advanced technologies, cannot restore a decomposing corpse to life. Only God can do that. Only God, the one who is life, has that power. So who is Jesus if he's not God? That was the sign that everybody saw that day, to see and to believe. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John 11. John chapter 11. We're going to come close to finishing the chapter today. We're going to go from verse... 45 down to verse 54. And basically what we're going to cover today, this is the fallout from the raising of Lazarus. The fallout that takes place after news gets out about this dead man brought back to life. Remember, this all takes place just two miles away from the headquarters of the chief priests and scribes. This miracle happens right under the noses of the most powerful people in Judaism. And that is going to play a major factor in the rest of the story of Jesus' life. Let's back up to verse 43. Let's be reminded where we were last Sunday. Remember, this crowd had followed Mary out to see Jesus, and now Mary and Jesus are moving towards the tomb where the body of Lazarus had been laid. And remember, Jesus prayed out loud with a very specific purpose in mind so that everyone present that day would be drawn into this intimate relationship that he had with his father. What he wanted to make sure was that nobody there misunderstood who really had the power to do this miracle that was about to happen. This was not a parlor trick, right? This was not some form of magic. So Jesus had asked Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of all these people present that day, to permit this show of his power to raise the dead to life. And Jesus had been heard. And that's what John describes as the main thing that Jesus wants the crowd to recognize that day. He had prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh had heard him. And now... Here's the result of that. Be amazed. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I mentioned this last week, but let me just reiterate it. It's clear that John is narrating a historical event here that he actually saw with his own eyes. This story, the way it's written, it does not read like a fable. It does not read like an embellished myth. It is straightforward, it is realistic, and it contains important details. And here's the amazing thing that often gets overlooked when we read this story. Even Jesus' enemies acknowledge that the miracle took place. Even they have to recognize it. We're going to see that in just a moment. They could not question the fact that everyone knew Lazarus had died and yet now he was alive. In fact, he is now walking around Judea telling the story. So think about this. If it's your goal to shut Jesus down, if it's your goal to oppose him, what do you do now? I mean, what's your strategy in this battle against Jesus? Look at verse 45. We're going to see two very different reactions to this miracle. Two very different paths taken by the eyewitnesses To what had just happened, verse forty-five. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he Jesus had done believed in him. Now, for those of us reading the story two thousand years later, looking—I mean, we have the advantage of looking back, right—and we have John's commentary all along of what was going on. This is the biggest no-brainer in the history of of no-brainers, right? Of course, this man has come from God. He just brought a dead man back to life. Who wouldn't believe? But then look at the stunning news in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Snitches. (laughs) Snitches get stitches, right? You've heard that, right? These are tattletales. These are ruthless, stone-hearted people looking to gain favor with the religious establishment of Israel. They are capable of seeing this miracle right before their eyes, and their first inclination is not to believe, but to run to Jesus's enemies and tattle. That is stunning, isn't it? But you know what? We should never be surprised at what and where unbelief will drive a person who loves himself and loves his selfish desires more than anything else. We should never be surprised. Today, we're often caught off guard, right, as Christians. We're caught off guard by, by what people truly love and what desires they really pursue. When we see what they're willing to do to gain power, what they'll, they'll write on social media to make themselves look so important and to tear other people down, we are often surprised, but we shouldn't be. This is the condition of men and women for more than 2,000 years, right? This goes all the way back. Different context, but the same wicked, unbelieving Heart As Christians, we need to have tougher skin. We need to understand what the Bible says about the condition of man and look out and say, you know what, none of this surprises me because man has always been this way. And this is the big idea of today's message. Jesus always divides people into two camps, always. His words, his deeds, his identity, they force every person to choose one of two paths. Fall on your face and trust Jesus Or run to the Pharisees and tattle. Those are the two choices. Now, don't be confused by this. This division that we're talking about is God's eternal and sovereign plan. And raising Lazarus from the dead is an essential piece to accomplishing his plan. In fact, I'll give you four really important things that come out of this miracle. Number one, it demonstrates the awesome power of God and the glory of his son. We just sang about that in our first song this morning. More than anything else, this miracle demonstrates the awesome power of God and the glory of His Son. Number two, it strengthened the faith of those who already believed, particularly the disciples who came to Bethany with Jesus. Remember, they they went sort of reluctantly. Okay, I don't think we should go, but here we go, right? They get their faith strengthened because they see this and they're like, wow, right? Martha and Mary. Jesus, if you'd just been here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. Wow. Strengthened their faith. Number three, it brought many to saving faith in Jesus as the Messiah sent by God. Many there that day believed. And number four, and yes, this also is part of God's plan. It provoked greater and more intense opposition, bringing the cross into view. So that first purpose, let's go back to that because that one bears repeating. It demonstrates the awesome power of God and the glory of his son. Everybody who witnessed the raising of Lazarus and had been marked out by God for salvation saw the glory of God manifested in Jesus the Son that day. In fact, they were eyewitnesses of the very creator of Genesis 1 at work. Think about that. They were in the presence of the one who had all authority and power over life and death. Imagine, imagine being an eyewitness to this event. Calvin has an interesting Observation about this. Calvin writes this. He says, beholding the glory of God happens when we know what he truly is. And then he adds this important caveat. It's on the screen. We never truly glory in him until we've utterly discarded our own glory. For whosoever glories in himself, glories against God. That's a great statement. Here's why I bring this up. If you're sitting here this morning as a genuine disciple and follower of Christ, if you've trusted in him alone as Savior and Lord, then you too have beheld his glory. Now, not as obviously as those who saw this amazing miracle at the tomb of Lazarus, but you have seen his glory. Here's why. Because spiritually speaking, you too were raised from the dead. And that's a big part of what what this, this story of Lazarus tells us. It tells us we've been raised from the dead as well. We don't often think in these terms, but listen to what the word says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That that is just a fact. You were dead in your sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That was all of our stories, being led by the the enemy, right? By the course of this world. You formerly lived in the lusts of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature you were under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved you, even when you were dead in your transgressions, He made you. You alive together with Christ. He made you alive together with Christ. It's by grace and by grace alone that you have been saved. So you see the story of Lazarus and you're like, wow. I want you to say wow about what God has done in your life to raise you from the dead. Staying in uh, with Calvin's explanation. When God brought you to life, you discarded your own glory. And for the first time, the scales fell from your eyes. You were able to see him for who he truly is. You beheld his glory and you believed. Spurgeon, in his day, challenged his congregation to see unsaved sinners all over England as just as corrupt in their unbelief as was Lazarus's decomposing body. Think about that. Wrap your mind around this fact that you and I being raised to spiritual life is a miracle on par with Lazarus being raised physically from the dead because only God can do that work. Now, if you've been deceived into thinking you did it, well, then it's not such a miracle, is it? But if God has done that work, if he's done the work alone, it is on the par with Lazarus being raised from the dead. So look at the person next to you. If they know Christ, that's a walking miracle. That's a walking miracle sitting right next to you today. We think it's amazing that Lazarus was walking around Judea telling everybody about the story about coming to life. I've got news for you guys. We're all Lazarus. We're supposed to be walking around Santa Clarita <laughs> saying we've been raised to life. Do we miss that in this story? That's our testimony. We too have been raised to life. We've been made alive together with Christ. As a dead man, Lazarus had no power to do this on his own. He could not raise himself to life. None of us can. He needed the life-giving word of Jesus to call him out of death. And that's true of every sinner in this room who is spiritually born again. We were brought to life. Christian, let this story increase your faith. Let it encourage you. God has done a miracle in your life by saving you. Never forget that. Okay, let's look at the sad and tragic other path now. Taken by the enemies of Christ. Look at verse 47 again. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Now, that is a reference to the full leadership in Jerusalem, this body that has come down to us in history known as the Sanhedrin. Now, at this point in history, the Sadducees, one of the three major parties within Israel, the Sadducees made up the majority of this council. They were the most powerful ones. When you read in Scripture, chief priests, we're talking about the Sadducees. They were much fewer in number than the Pharisees, but they had greater power primarily because they were concentrated there in Jerusalem and they controlled what we call the temple cult. The worship, the sacrifices, and the financial aspect of the temple. And they came from the wealthiest and most prestigious families in Judaism. And they passed on that birthright. So the Sadducees were, by by this term that we hear today, they were the elites of their day, the Sadducees were. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were much greater in number. You would find them from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and, and, and they prided themselves in being sort of the populist party. They were, the, they were actually, it's hard, because we always think the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? They were the most beloved religious party in all of Israel during this time. In fact, they were the ones, they were the local pastors, so to speak, that people would go to for instruction in the law. Now, what's so, so great about the next six verses that we're going to read here is how John takes us into the inner sanctum of this powerful body of men. Now, I'm going to put this picture on the screen again because I'm a visual learner. It's just good to know what we're dealing with when we talk about, <laughs> when we talk about the Sanhedrin, right? How many of you guys are visual? You, you just, it helps you to see it. Okay, good. We get taken into the inner sanctum behind closed doors into the chambers of the most important body in all of Israel. Now, this council, although they were still technically under the oversight of Rome, they had exclusive and unlimited power to all the internal affairs of what happened in Israel. That raises an important question, by the way. How do we even know what was going on? This is in private, right behind closed doors. Well, we find out later that some members of the Sanhedrin came to trust in Jesus later on. We know Joseph of Arimathea was there, probably Nicodemus, Although we're not sure he's saved, he certainly is is sympathetic to Jesus' situation after the cross. So it's very possible that John interviewed one or both of them to find out what was going on in this particular meeting. So go back to verse 47 now. It says, and they, the members of this council, were saying, what are we doing? And a better way to translate that is, what are we going to do? Okay, if you've ever been part of a a staff meeting or some executive meeting where everybody sits around and is like, okay, guys, ideas? Anybody? What are we going to do? And you can almost hear in their their voice there's a certain level of of panic and concern in the question. What are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs, they say. That is fascinating. They cannot deny what's been going on. Jesus, for quite a while now, has been doing all these miraculous things and in front of lots of people, and and they don't know what to do about it. They can't deny it. According to John, nobody in the council stood up that day to dispute the fact that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. In fact, there's no record anywhere that anyone ever said that didn't happen. And now these guys are in a pickle. Jesus is doing these things, guys. The people have seen it. Now, what do we do? And here's how they work it out. They start by discussing the dangers of doing nothing. I love this. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, they say, and by the way, catch the arrogance in that, if we let them, if we let him keep doing these things, wow, what's going to happen? Look what it says. All men will believe in him. And they see that as a tragedy. They see it as a tragedy. Why? Because if they believe in Jesus and if they start following after Jesus, what will become of us? What will become of us? So their motivation begins to bleed through in this discussion. Listen, they have a vested interest in making sure the system continues in the way it's going. And they're terrified of losing it. These men hated the fact that the common people ran after Jesus. It made them feel smaller in comparison to Jesus. It was a great threat to their pride. And it was made so much worse by the fact that everywhere Jesus went, particularly up in Galilee, he was constantly challenging and questioning their authority, challenging their traditions. It made him so angry. They could feel their power beginning to slip away. And at the end of verse 48, they theorize what will happen if all Israel begins to follow after Jesus. They say, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's some interesting speculation. I mean, you talk about, you know, that escalated quickly. I, I, really? That, I mean, that's, that's what you think is going to happen if people begin to believe in this very peaceful rabbi from Nazareth. That Rome's going to come down and crush us. Is it hyperbolic language? Is it just fear? Is it panic? Well, that term place in the Greek is just the generic term for a location. So what they're talking about here is is either Jerusalem as a city or they're talking about the temple as the house of God. But either way, if they're talking about the land or Jerusalem or, or the temple, it is a disaster of epic proportions in their mind. This is the fear. If we lose control, if we lose control over the people, this Jesus is going to start some nationalistic frenzy in Israel, and Rome is going to, we're going to force Rome's hand, and they're going to come down, and they're going to crush us, and they're going to bring their legions down, and they're going to take our city, and they're going to take our land and put us in slavery. By the way, this did happen in 70, didn't it? This does happen later on. But they were, they were panicked in this moment. Now, here's what I find really interesting. If you're a historical geek like me, and you've studied the history of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Josephus, the great Jewish historian, bears this out, the Pharisees and the Sadducees really, really disliked each other. I mean, they were antagonistic. They had a very contentious relationship. They had very different theological views and they were always jockeying for power to to try to please the people, to see who the people loved more. The Pharisees looked at the Sadducees and they looked at them and they said, you guys are liberals, theological liberals. You're compromised. You're in bed with Rome. And the Sadducees looked down their nose at the Pharisees and, and said, you guys in your narrow interpretation of the law. And so they hated each other But here, in this situation, they're unified. Here, with the threat of Jesus on their doorstep, they find common cause. And that common cause is the preservation of their power and their status. I mean, do we see this happening in America today? Is it not all about preserving power? We see it everywhere. The condition of man doesn't change. Okay, so the stage is now set for one man to stand up in this council and to take charge. And to say, here's the direction we have to go. And his name is Caiaphas. He's the high priest. Now, we, again, we know from multiple historical sources about this man, Caiaphas. Very well-known figure in Israel's history. Shrewd and calculating. A politician. Definitely not a man of God. In fact, by this time in history, the whole office of the high priest was so corrupt that it had basically become, you know, whoever could offer the biggest bribe to the Roman governor would be appointed High priest in Israel. That's how corrupt things had become. And the family of Caiaphas was very, very wealthy. He was a Sadducee. His father-in-law, Annas, had been high priest before him. By the time Caiaphas retires, he will have bribed Rome enough to serve 18 years as high priest. Way, 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 way more than any other man in his particular era. This is a wicked dude. And as you read John's account, you catch how rude he is, how arrogant he is. Look at verse 49. says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, he looks at the whole council, and he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, let me explain to you in plain English what Caiaphas is saying here. Picture him sitting in this high and lofty chair, right, stroking his beard, right, and he's listening to this back and forth. All these people with their ideas, right? And remember, everybody came to the meeting. What's the ideas? How do we stop this Jesus? And he's listening, and now he's fed up, and he says, stop, stop, you ignorant fools. Have you not worked this through in your heads? Either we all get destroyed, or this one man dies as a sacrificial lamb, period. Wake up, guys. It's to your advantage that we eliminate this threat To the people. And notice how he couches it, he postures it as we're concerned about the people. What a lie that is. What he's interested in is his own self interest, in his own power. And he's so ruthless about it, right? Imagine being the high priest of Israel, the high priest of Israel of all people, and having such a cavalier attitude towards putting to death an innocent man. Shocking. But let's make sure we think theologically, right? Caiaphas is spiritually blind. He is spiritually dead. So, of course, he thinks this way. Guys, this is the way men and women operate out of self-interest, always. If they don't know Christ, they're going to operate out of self-interest. And this is what Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 2. He'll say, look, we as Christ followers, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Caiaphas is spiritually blind, can't see it. That's really quite remarkable. These are the shepherds of Israel, these are the guys tasked to shepherd the entire nation, yet they're so blind and so deceived and so threatened and so much in a state of panic that they're capable of agreeing to plot the murder of a man that many of their own sheep believe is the Messiah. That's crazy. You would think that caution would be the order of the day, right? But no, there's not going to be any official charges. There's no plan to call witnesses. There's no trial plan. There's no attempt to really discover the truth. The goal is simply uphold the system and remove the threat. Shocking. It's all completely illegal. Based on biblical law and Roman law, it's illegal. This is a secret federal conspiracy hatched by people at the highest levels of power in Israel. We can read right past this and not see how shocking this private meeting was, this private gathering. And you get a sense they walked out of here there and they said, you know what? Nobody says a word. It stays all right here. This is the plot. Shocking. Okay, so what can we learn from this? What can we learn from these wicked men and their wicked choices? There's two things at play here that we need to see because you know what? The church is not perfect. Can these things seep into the church? Oh, absolutely. Two things. Number one, there's a failure on the part of these religious leaders to understand and trust that God is sovereign over their lives and circumstances. Here's why I say that. Based on what we read here, it appears that Caiaphas and this council believed it was their clever political maneuverings that was keeping Rome at bay. They believed they were responsible for protecting Israel, not God. And if we just keep making the right moves, if we move the chess pieces correctly and we eliminate the threats, we will keep Rome off of our backs. But does that really line up with Israel's history? It doesn't. Israel had always been preserved from her enemies, not by political power, not by military might, but by the sovereign hand of Yahweh. I mean, you can, you can read all through the Old Testament and you'll see God supernaturally protecting his people. And yet these men, who, by the way, are not stupid and not uninformed, they know their history. They're not able to apply their biblical worldview, their historical word, worldview that should be informed by their own scriptures and apply it to their own situation. Guys, we can do this as well. We can be experts in the Bible, but fail to bridge that into our lives. Like, oh, I know the history of the Bible, but I haven't applied it in my life. Be careful. So they lived in constant fear of what Rome might do if the people got out of line. In fact, it appears they they fear Rome more than they fear God. And that's a problem. Their worldview is very pragmatic, very practical, very earthly-minded, not heavenly focused, we can get that way as well. I've seen leaders in the church begin to think that it's all their wisdom and all their smart moves and all their decisions that's making the difference, not God. We need to be really careful about this. Christians face the same danger. Are we trusting in God alone to sustain us here at Oak Hill to protect our church in the face of possible persecution in the future? Are we trusting God or are we, are we thinking that we're doing that? Will churches continue to stand on and preach the truth of Scripture regardless of the threats that are coming our way? Or will we compromise in order to keep the doors open and the budgets funded? Right? Because if we get the idea that, oh, you know, it's our pragmatic decisions that make the difference, we just tweak, it, tweak something here, tweak it there, we'll be fine. And not trust the Lord. Our preacher's gonna alter the message in the name of pragmatism and relevance so that we can continue to please a world that is gonna keep growing more and more in their hatred of us and what we believe. Are we gonna have to constantly compromise the message? We have to guard against becoming so arrogant that we think it's our maneuvering that A grows the church or B protects us in this world when we know that only God does those things. Only God. And this is why we talk a lot at Oak Hill about building and strengthening our worldview, our biblical worldview. Because again, I'll say it again, we can, we can be experts at, at hermeneutics and exegeting the text and all this, but then fail to apply those things as we look out at it, the world. Fail to apply them in our lives. Oh yeah, I, I see what God did in the past, but today I've got to handle this. Hmm. Second thing to notice, and this is the thing that really stands out. When you look at Caiaphas and the council, self love and self preservation. Go back to Caiaphas' statement. Listen to his appeal to the self love and the self interest of the other members of the council. This guy's super clever, isn't he? He says, Listen, guys, you're not taking into account that it's better for you, it's to your advantage that this one man dies. The language is very specific here. It's better for you, it's to your advantage. See, Caiaphas knows these men well. He's a student of their habits and he's clever. He knows they want to hold on to their privileges and their comforts and their status among the people. He knows they want to keep all of the economic benefits flowing. And so he frames his argument precisely in those terms. Guys, think about you and your families. It's better for you that this man die. It's just one guy. What's the big deal? Isn't it better that he die, than we lose all this? I mean, that's the the discussion happening behind closed doors. Again, these are the the shepherds of Israel, the highest in the land. But they love themselves. And they love the perks of their life more than they love God, more than they love the scriptures, more than they loved God's sheep. They love themselves. And the Bible constantly describes this, about the condition of natural man and natural woman. Not lovers of God, but lovers of self, lovers of comfort, lovers of pleasure, lovers of falsehood, lovers of all kinds of stuff and ideas that will allow them to turn a blind eye to what is good and what is true. And love is a powerful force. Love is a powerful force. And when it's employed in the service of self, when love is employed in the service of self and self-preservation, It is powerful enough to harm and powerful enough to destroy anyone and anything in its way. Don't miss this. What you love matters. What you love most makes a difference. Love employed in the service of self will crush any opposition. It will crush anyone who crosses it, anyone who becomes a perceived enemy. It will crush. And it'll use the worst tools known to man in order to do that crushing. Gossip and slander and threats and violence and yes, even murder. Even murder. Imagine this. As far as we know, not one man had the courage to stand up in this council meeting and oppose Caiaphas. Not one man stood up and said, but what about Lazarus? What about Lazarus? No, they all agreed. Not one man. And even if one of them felt a pang of conscience or doubt, they likely would have suppressed that out of fear, fear of appearing disloyal, fear of being weak, and possibly running the risk of losing their place at that very important table. So they would have tucked it away. They would have suppressed that feeling. And they said nothing. That's what makes self-love and self-preservation so powerful. It'll destroy a man's integrity, and it will make him a coward. It will make him a coward in the face of pressure. What do you love most? Do we see this happen in the church today? Absolutely. We see it among leaders. We see it among congregations. The desire for self, for self popularity, for personal gain, for the applause of other people, for social media attention. There is an endless list of things that loving self will drive us towards. So what do you love most? You got to know this, folks. Whatever you love will drive your thoughts. Whatever you love will drive your feelings. Whatever you love most will ultimately drive your choices. And the false idols that you love had the potential to harm and destroy not just yourself, but others, if it's not reined in and replaced by God and the truth of His word. So guard your hearts carefully. Okay, one last thing to see here. This is a great encouragement. Look at verse 51. Look at what John says about Caiaphas' brash statement to the council. Now, he did not, that's Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now catch this. This is is wild. In saying that one man should die for the sake of the people, Caiaphas unknowingly, unwittingly lays out the principle that is at the very heart of our faith, substitution. (laughs) This is amazing. Jesus has to die as a substitute for the nation and its, its people. But John says this was a completely involuntary prophecy, He didn't even realize what he was doing. He says it right there. He didn't pronounce it on his own initiative. God did. God God did the work that caused him to pronounce this amazing truth. Wow. And he did it in such a way that the very expression of this wicked man's plan to murder Jesus became an expression of the most glorious truth that we know today the truth that we read about this morning in our call to worship from Isaiah 53, right? That God the Father would cause the iniquity of us to fall on his own son. That the Father would be pleased to crush his own sin as a guilt offering on our behalf, substitution. Jesus, the Lamb of God, sent to the cross by the Father, by the Father to be our substitute and to pay our ransom. Caiaphas involuntarily pronounces that prophecy because God is working through him. You're like, "Hold on a second. God working through an unbeliever? Oh yeah. All the time. All the time. In fact, this is the perfect outworking of if you're familiar with Genesis 50:20, right? The story of Joseph and his brothers. Do you remember what it says? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Caiaphas meant his statement for evil. We're going to murder this guy. God meant it for good. The end of that verse in Genesis 50 says, so that the desired result comes to pass. God's desired result is that you and I would be here this morning redeemed by the cross, by the blood of the one who will be sacrificed. What a mind-blowing thing this is, right? That God can use a wicked man like Caiaphas to prophesy truth, truth in spite of his hatred of Jesus. But remember, you don't have to be a believer to be God's mouthpiece. Ask Balaam or his donkey, Right? I mean, God works, you look at Old Testament history, God works through this wicked people, Assyria, doesn't he? God works through wicked men like Pharaoh and Saul and King Herod and even Judas Iscariot to accomplish his purposes. And amazingly, in each one of those names I just gave you, these people, these unbelievers, were working with their own self-interest in mind, their own selfish goals, while God is in heaven laughing going, I'll bring about my purposes through this. Amazing stuff. Here's the lesson that we learned. You cannot thwart God's plan. The most wicked human being on the face of the earth in all of human history has no power to thwart God's sovereign will. God will accomplish his purposes. And what a peaceful thing that is, right? Now, it's true that as men are doing those things, they think they're winning. I mean, Caiaphas did succeed, if you want to call it that, in putting Jesus to death. Right, But in the end, God's purposes always prevail. And by the way, there's not one group of people gathered this Sunday morning to worship Caiaphas. (laughs) God wins. Jesus wins. Here we are today, right? Friends, know that the unseen hand of God was sovereignly guiding all things to their appointed end 2,000 years ago. He's still doing it today. We have got to understand this. We expect that things are going to get harder here in America for Christians, right? We expect challenges coming down the road, but we can know this for sure. Wicked men will do what wicked men do. They will try to do their worst, but they will never change God's plan. Never. Never. The rulers of this age still don't understand the wisdom and the mystery of God's ways. And so they will continue to act out and they will stumble and bumble their way through life and they will make errors and they will unwittingly participate in God's sovereign purposes. We'll see it, right? Because we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That means we can discern what's going on around us. We can say, yep. We're not surprised by this wickedness. This is what people do. But we can also see God's hand in all of it. And we can trust him for the results because he always brings about his desired results. Always. And nothing will change that. Now there's even more in verse 52 because God's sovereignty actually extends outside the borders of Israel. Did you know that? To the whole world. Look, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the involuntary prophecy of Caiaphas was even greater than he could have imagined in that day. Because trust me, Caiaphas could never have imagined that the Gentiles (laughs) would become the people of God. He never would have said that. But this goes right back to what, remember how Jesus back in chapter 10, right? He talked about this other sheepfold, the Gentiles from all over the earth. One Savior, one sacrifice, one body, gathered together from every race, tribe, and tongue, all singing praises to the Lamb. Caiaphas prophesied it, and he didn't even know it. I love it. Okay, quick P.S. to the story. This is going to set us up for next Sunday. Verse 53. So from that day on, they, the Sanhedrin, planned or plotted to kill Jesus. Therefore, he no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So remember, this is the second time in the last couple months we've seen Jesus do a strategic retreat from, from danger, from hostility, right? He is, listen, Jesus is well aware of the timing here. He must die at Passover season. So he's going to retreat away from the hostility of Jerusalem and he's going to go out towards the wilderness and he's going to begin to focus his final moments with his closest friends, the disciples. We're getting close to transitioning from Jesus's public ministry to his private ministry as he prepares the disciples for his death. Now, the final three verses we're not going to touch. You know why? These actually belong in chapter 12. Remember, the chapter divisions are not inspired by God, okay? Verses 55 to 57, I think, are wrongly placed. They should be at the top of chapter 12 because they introduce that subject matter, so we will pick them up next time, I promise, for today. For today, take a deep breath. I want you to think about some of the practical things we've talked about this morning. Let me summarize. Remember, Jesus always divides. Always divides into two camps, two paths, two camps, The most important question you can answer this morning is which camp are you in? Have you fallen on your face and believed or have you run to the Pharisees to tattle? Which camp are you in? Have you seen and recognized the glory of God manifested through his son? If so, are you living your life with an understanding that you are a walking miracle, that you have been brought to life by God, that you are chosen and loved by him? And do you live that out? Are you like Lazarus walking around Santa Clarita saying, I've been brought to life. You should hear this story. Are you trusting in his sovereign power to sustain you and protect you? Or have you somehow convinced yourself that you're such a mover and shaker that you're in control of things? You should trust God. Is the idol of self-love and self-preservation a problem in your life right now? That's a tough one. Is the idol of self-love and self-preservation a problem in your life right now? In your love for self, have you harmed somebody else that you need to go and now make it right? You've harmed somebody out of your own self-interest and maybe you need to apologize. Maybe you need to seek restoration in that relationship. In light of the story of Caiaphas and this council, what adjustments do you need to make in your life right now? How How do you view the world? Around you, Do you see it through this lens of God's sovereignty? A lot of questions here. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I'm just going to give you a few moments to to consider some of those questions. My hope is that even as you heard this message and you saw the text that the Spirit was pointing things out to you. Listen, if the Spirit was pointing things out to you, please don't neglect that. Please don't neglect it. Process that through with God.